Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Yarwain, aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 1, Mad Investor Chaos and the Woman of Asmodeus. Episode 38. No plan survives first contact with the enemy, but they're as prepared as they can be. What do you mean it's already lunchtime? Somebody should have informed Keltham before this. Now he doesn't have time to prioritize his remaining additional questions and ask those before he has to go. Oh no, has Carissa been waiting patiently in her bedroom for him to show up and get his shirt laundered this whole time? This researcher doesn't know that, but he can take letters if Keltham thinks of further questions. Carissa even had enough time to prepare spells, and she's delighted about it. She prepared the ones for the improbable escape, mostly. She's sitting alone by the window in the dining room, looking through a book about the Year of Four Kings, from when Taldor and Chaliax were unified, that they decided didn't require any modification. Good morning. Well, not morning anymore, but same essential principle. It's morning somewhere. Is it all right with you if I convey the information needed to settle the sadism bets, which is just yes or no, or should I not do that? It occurred to me this morning that you might have privacy intuitions or something. Oh yeah, it's fine. I mean, maybe run it past me before you release exact details of what we did together. Not saying no, just saying not sure how I'd feel, but the general fact is fine. Carissa gives a table across the room a thumbs up. There are giggles. I'm not planning to say anything else, she assures him. I don't quite understand the whole concept of spoilers, but that seems like it might fall under it. Keltham tries a new question, gets a surprising internal blip. Though, if it's not somebody planning on sleeping with me at some point, actually I seem to have emotional reservations about you telling all of the exact details to security and governance. But I'm also aware that this may not be reasonable or the most important consideration. So maybe ask me if they need all the exact details, and I can decide in more detail what to feel about it. Also happy about routing it to any entities with no sexuality, but don't assume that's necessary if it's incredibly expensive. That describes lots of devils, but they're probably pretty expensive, yeah. I don't think they should need the exact details, rather than broad things like, no, I'm not pregnant, no, you don't have such extremely narrow tastes that we need to start a nationwide search. If they ask more than that, I'll ask you. Keltham knows he is probably supposed to find something flirtatious to say, but his mind is coming up blank, and it's still blank, and it goes on being blank, and finally Keltham gives up and says, Well, for whatever it's worth, your attractiveness remains a stable aspect of yourself between yesterday and today. Oh, and I've got the notes for some of the sexual questions and topics I managed not to talk about while we were in the middle of fucking. But I probably shouldn't hand all of those to you right now. Should probably be more of an evening thing. For notes on sexual questions, I can make some time in my busy evening schedule. Anyway, I'll have a headband by then. Maybe it'll make me better at explaining things. Oh, that's good news. Project resources coming through? No, actually. I tromped over to acquisitions this morning once it seemed like you were occupied and asked what the delay is and they were still like, eh, a couple of weeks, we don't think it'd be beneficial to rush. So I said, fine, I've been at the World Wound for six years. I nearly had a headband amount of money saved up anyway. I'm getting paid much more now. How much of a loan on my future salary are we talking about? And it was six days, so I bought one. 
Keltham almost asks how much she is getting paid, but the financial amounts are conspicuous in their absence from her sentence, and there might be some reason for that. He'll ask later in private, or he'll just ask, I should probably go talk to somebody about, like, project resources, rushes or not rushes, whether governance has any priorities and all that, though before then, I don't need share language until tonight, and could arguably wait until morning, depending on timing, but can you wizard boot my clothing at some point, before I talk to any serious people? Yes, and she does that. So long as that's happening anyways, can Keltham feel the magic at all, while it's going on next to him? No. Keltham hopes he is not cursed to just remain a cleric. Keltham also wants to be a wizard. Well, Keltham can spend some additional time trying to learn that, but Keltham should talk to project management before he sets his day's schedule. And before then, he should eat lunch, having failed at breakfast. What does the menu look like today in Cheliak's? Stuffed pheasant, rolls, various kinds of fish and various kinds of sauces, fruit tart things. Fat, protein, carbs. Cool. Simple, low-tech fare, but the novelty of it hasn't worn off. Keltham fills up a plate and stops by Carissa's spot to inquire about Galarian's pre-existing people-who-just-had-sex etiquette, if any, W-slash-R-slash-T his eating lunch with Carissa the day after, versus eating lunch at the more populous table. It is that you should do what makes you happy. I suspected you were going to say that, and I already pre-decided what I would do regardless of the object-level etiquette answer if that was your meta-answer, so I would be able to tell you that your etiquette answer definitely wouldn't influence me. But I still want to know what the etiquette is, if there is one. Eating lunch with the girl you just slept with implies you are inclined to get attached one at a time. Not monogamy, but, like, one developing relationship gotten to a certain point before you pick up a new one— and eating lunch with all the other girls implies not that. And there isn't etiquette about which one to imply, and in this case, there isn't even really the risk you'll mislead people since everyone knows you are an alien, and nothing you do will have the normal implications. Whether I can get attached to more than one girl at a time is an interesting question. I guess I'll find out the answer to. But I expect I can be attracted to more than one girl at a time. Keltham goes to sit down by the other girls. He's not quite sure what to say to Carissa, feels pressure to have clever and intelligent things to say to Carissa, and it's easier to be part of a larger conversation with people he's seen less immediately. That this is a stereotypical Dath Elan boy thing. To do doesn't change that Keltham is, in fact, a boy, and doesn't want to expend the mental overhead on defying his gender trope doom fate right now. He's so bad at being evil! This is going to be such an uphill battle. Hi, Keltham, Meritzel says brightly. Are there lessons today? Good question. Probably. What specifically the lessons are is something I'll know better after I talk. Project priorities with project management, which I really need to go actually do. Oh, by the way, point of curiosity. How much are you currently being paid? And then whatever the quantity is, can you translate it into hours of unskilled labor? Well, shit. If anyone has an established answer to that, they need to tell Meritzel immediately. My contract's just for the week. I'm going to have to renegotiate it afterwards, she says. No one has told her. Uh... It's for 300 gold, which is, I think, around four unskilled labor years. And if she gets in trouble for that, it can just be less on an ongoing basis. 
It being a lot less than that would be weird if Keltham knows anything about what wizards go for generally. Your economy makes no sense. None. It does not make any sense at all. All of the sense was surgically extracted from it by advanced medical technology. Or are you just getting, like, come down here for a very strange and possibly dangerous week, and then we'll renegotiate exception-handling money? Shoot. Is it too low or too high? She has no idea what Keltham's calibrated off. The latter? When they grabbed us, I don't think anyone knew exactly what we were being hired to do besides, uh, hang around an alien our age who Asmodeus had said to be helpful to. What does a regular wizard of whichever circle you are get paid? Like a tenth of that? If they're spending most of their time on things that make money. 0.4 years. Week, week is one fiftieth year or so. So twenty times more than unskilled labor. Okay, that's not too bad. That's a relatively well-paid person in Dathilan, but not mad superboss money. Very little labor remaining in Dathilan is labor that requires no prior skill, practice, or native talent. But the fact that there are a few things like that which need to be bid into any market, and that everybody has that particular resource to offer, makes it a reasonable-sounding sort of thing to use for a unit of account, assuming that you are otherwise the sort of people who just refuse to accept downward price stickiness and will instead repeatedly scream at everyone to adjust their damn prices more often, instead of going for an inflationary unit of account that means a different thing each year and would require adjusting all the graphs. Some very serious people think this was the wrong decision, but it's got a lot of civilizational inertia behind it. Good, because it is true. Meritzel really sees the merits of saying true things to Keltham. Wizards don't start making what I think you'd call mad superboss money until fifth circle. And that's one thirty-second of wizards, who are one percent of the population. So that checks out. You are not having most of the wage income going to a small fraction of all the people. One in thirty-two wizards will eventually make fifth circle, but fewer than that are fifth circle at any given moment, since it takes decades, says Meritzel. It's like, one in sixty, one in a hundred. I think it's changing now in Cheliac since we have way more people training to be wizards than we did a generation ago, but I don't remember the exact numbers offhand. Somebody who's already eaten a bit want to try, like, introducing themselves and their life story, says Keltham, since I actually need to eat having missed breakfast while distracted. Uh, feel free not to, if that's not a thing here. Keltham does start eating, though. The girls glance at each other. I'll go, says Meritzel cheerfully. I was born here in Ostenso. My father's a wizard and my mother is a cleric of Asmodeus. She picked him out because she wanted smart children. I have eight half-siblings. My elementary school was in the temple, so I didn't actually leave it until I was... ten? It was a big temple, though, endless courtyards and secret passages and so on, and it had an orphanage, so I had lots of peers, though I was smarter than them. I had more toys than them, so I traded them toys for doing all my chores. When I was nine, I tested into wizard school and was absurdly excited, mostly because it was all the way down the big street. When I was twelve, my mother decided all this was embarrassingly uncosmopolitan, and so she took me on a trip around the country by boat, and that is how I discovered I get very seasick and declared I wasn't leaving Ostenso again until I'm a high-level wizard and can teleport. A declaration that was about to be falsified, since I've enlisted. But now here I am instead of going to the world wound, so maybe it'll come true. Who knows? Huh. That sounds a lot more normal for a genius's childhood than I think I would have expected for Galarian. 
unusually smart mom who can afford childcare for lots of kids, picks out smart dads, spends part of her life having eight kids. They all live in a huge group house with lots of secret passageways. One of those kids is even smarter and ends up getting hired by a weird, important project. That could basically be the early biography of any Dath Ilani, who's as smart for that world as you are for this one. Except for the part where you literally didn't leave the enormous temple, which I guess makes more sense if travel is more expensive and dangerous, and the children get centralized to a particular part of the city where they don't get attacked by mind-altering cornfields. How many horrible Galarian things are you leaving out from that story because you don't want to embark on very long explanations of them? Not asking for a list, just a rough quantity. None on purpose for that reason. Probably several because they didn't occur to me as horrible, such as, yes, the fact it's dangerous for children to wander around outside alone, or I had more would-be siblings who died. Probably four or five things like that if I think about it. Keltham's brain does automatically generate the question, how many dead siblings, but it doesn't make it to mouth. I had an odd childhood for a doth Ilani, Keltham says, a lot less optimized than most childhoods are. My parents weren't driven to make my life as perfect as possible, just substantially better than not existing. I agree with them about that, to be clear, but still, a lot of Dath Ilani would be, well, actually were, politely horrified about it. Like lots of moving between different parts of default, uh, that's the biggest city and civilization where you live if you want to live around lots of options, and you don't have any particular reason to live anywhere else. Other parents would have been worried about frequent moves disrupting my childhood relationships. On their philosophy, maybe that wasn't literally optimal for me, but I'd probably be basically fine. So they went ahead and moved any time they got bored. Single-family house module, with only a couple of secret passages, one of which was in the house library and just went around a corner from one bookcase to another bookcase in the same library. I am currently making an error, and my error is that I am not eating. Keltham resumes eating. That doesn't sound very odd for Galarian, but usually it'd be because the family had a job that required moving, not because they got frequently bored. How do people move around here when their job requires it? This villa seems like it'd be very hard to pick up intact and move somewhere else by non-magical means, and most people can't afford teleports, so that's not it. Do you just swap houses and all your stuff with another family of similar size that happens to live in the right place? Doesn't seem like that should happen at the same time, often enough, unless you have a monthly moving day. And Galerion seems too uncoordinated for shutting up now, eating. Everyone looks incredibly confused at him. If you're a priest, there's housing in the temples for priests assigned there and children they're raising, says Meritzel. And if you're anyone else, you look at apartments in the new place and sign a contract with a landlord for an apartment that has features you want, and then move your possessions there in a wagon, if you have a lot of possessions. That really sounds like something that would sound superficially plausible, but then turn out to not work quantitatively. Once you started running numbers on how many empty houses you needed all over, to always have the right subtype of house available for people to randomly move into. So even at the cleric or wizard level, houses must not have expensive, non-modularly removable features that only a few people want, because you can't take it with you if you leave the house? Just features that everybody wants, or stuff only you want that you can take with you when you leave. Or features that are common enough there'll be a vacancy that has it, says Meritzel. It doesn't have to be universal. 
but if you want something absurdly specific, you'll have to rebuild it if you leave. Wait, how do houses get to places in the first place if you can't move them once they're built? Like, this house looks to be way out in the middle of nowhere. If you can't move it, how did it get here after somebody built it? They built it here. So, like, there's a place that makes sections of walls and floors that are small enough to be easy to move, and they ship the sections of walls here, and a local crew assembles those into a house using tools that are also small and easy to ship around. You cut stone and lumber and ship them down the river and then have mules drag them to the site. And then at the site, you build the stone and lumber into walls, using uh, stonemasonry tools and saws and so on. Mules drag them to the site. Do you not have wheels? Keltham quickly tries to recall whether he's seen anything with a wheel built into it. He hasn't. Yes, we do. Mules drag wagons to the site if it's not too steep or rocky for that. Is it, like, not particularly more cost-effective, the way your economy usually runs, to have one place that makes lots and lots of something, instead of making a single copy of something, wherever it gets used? Definitely not for houses. The transport costs would kill you. It makes more sense to have one shipyard than a dozen small shipyards. Okay, good. When I heard that you were assembling single copies of houses, from raw materials, in individual places, without even trying to build pieces of houses in a single place and assemble those pieces, I was wondering if your whole world just didn't have centralized manufacturing for some reason. Ione has never done anything in her life like what she's about to do. Not since she was old enough to remember. And if her soul belonged to Asmodeus, she probably still wouldn't have done it. Keltham, you're supposed to be eating, she says. Right, more food. Actually, even if it's relatively safer now, Ione is not entirely sure why she did that. No one else gives her an odd glance about it because they're too well-trained. Laborers' time isn't very valuable, so for most things, it's more worthwhile to send the laborers to wherever you want them laboring than to figure out how to send a bunch of pieces of something across the country. Meritzel says. For shipbuilding, it makes sense to do it all in one place because you always want your ships in the one place and you have a harbor right there to send all the materials your laborers will need and also it's quite specialized. Keltham nods, his not-eating error having gotten so bad that even other people have started to notice. He does not reply, per se. Most people build their own houses, Tanya offers. Or their neighbors come over and they all raise a new barn together, from trees they felled from the forest right there, and shingles they baked in the kiln right there. Swallow. Don't hire specialized house builder because, plus Nam. The village has a hundred people in it, and there's a specialized priest and blacksmith and tanner, but that's it. Someone in the village needs a new barn raised or house built maybe once every couple years, and that's not often enough to be the only thing someone does. And you don't get visitors often enough to tell them, Oh, you should send a team of house builders from the city. I'm going to want a house in the spring. And if they did come, you couldn't afford them. And people are idle when it's not planting or harvesting season, so they may as well improve their land. Keltham bumps up the priority of cheaper travel on his list for causing people to, like, trade with each other instead of doing things they're not specialized in. How do non-wizards get between a small town and the nearest medium city to the small town? By boat, if it's on a river, or riding a horse, if it's not and they have a riding horse, or walking, if it's not on a river and they don't have a horse, and poor people don't have riding horses, says Tonya. Horse sounds like an animal, and those aren't cheap, yeah. So basic alternatives to walking, without combustion engines, bicycles, 
take relatively smooth surfaces to bike on. Are there roads between towns? No. There's a road from West Crown to Igorian, and it's new and costs the crown. I have no idea how much money, but only the crown could have done it, says Meritzel. Most places you travel by river or you mostly don't travel. So the key step on the tech tree is probably cheaper roads then to enable more professional specialization and trade between towns. Keltham wishes he'd read more novels about people going to other dimensions and rebuilding civilization from scratch. He's read like two and neither author recursed into road building. Swallow. Saturated on road tech research or not really trying it. Nom. I don't know of any road tech research projects, though. Probably the people who built the one from West Crown to Agorian would have gotten very rich if they figured out some better way to do it. You spent practically your whole life in a temple and then a wizard academy, Ioni says, slightly scathingly. You wouldn't know if there was a road tech research project any more than I would. How would any of us know? Meritzel, watch yourself. We're not supposed to know too much. Meritzel does know everything, though. She smiles at Ioni. Fair enough. Something about that interaction that just happened would never have happened in Dathilan. And Keltham is having difficulty putting a finger on what it is exactly. Ioni Sala has a slight nervous feeling like she just muffed something. Needs to cover. Distract. Well, I might as well go next, she says. I was born in a middling city at the junction of two minor rivers. My parents were a couple of low-level city bureaucrats. Intelligent enough not to be farmers, but not really a lot smarter than that. Incompetent. Failed. Filled with searing resentment at the world for it. I was noticeably a lot smarter than they were, so they hated me and did what they could to make my life more miserable without that affecting how much they could sell me for. Didn't know what to do with me, really. And wizard tracked me. Sold me like the farm animal I was. As soon as it became clear that I was going to be a bookish wizard type, my life is just that city, then Ostenso Academy. I also would have expected to see the larger world for the first time when I went to the world wound. Not that I'm complaining. I grew up on a farm where the nearest village was a couple hours of walking away, and the nearest city much farther than that. Far enough, no one had been, Tonya says. When I was seven, the village got a priest, and the priest said everyone had to come into the temple for school, so I went, and I hadn't seen reading or writing before, but I picked them up right away, and after a couple of months I was studying with the older kids, and after a year he said I should go into the city where I could get a proper education, and the church would house me and feed me while I did. So the next time he reported back to a big city, he took me with him, and I came here, and did a bunch of tests, and then got put in wizard classes. Keltham is getting this weird feeling, like he may, at some future point, predictably first-order update towards wishing he'd started industrializing Galarian slightly sooner, even if it was just by a day or an hour. Keltham isn't a perfect Bayesian, but he's a passable one. By Dath Ilani standards, he finishes his last two bites of food quickly and says, So can somebody direct me to, like, Office of Project Management? None of the girls are sure where that is. When I talked to them, they were working out of the temple, but that was really temporary. Carissa must have talked to them this morning. She said she asked about headbands, says Meritzel. Rees, move to Carissa location. Should probably go talk to project management now. Where to? 
One of the parlors. I can walk you there. How was lunch? Tasty enough and filled with slightly disturbing accounts of houses. Houses which, if this is considered a rich person's fancy, incredibly impressive house, I should probably try to avoid imagining in any concrete detail. Well, he should be avoiding imagining it, but in fact he is not. Keltham is imagining people, otherwise specialized in farming, pulling down entire trees and then gluing them together. It's probably some form of chemical glue, not fasteners, metal is expensive here, until the result looks like it has walls and mostly keeps out the wind. Oh, good. What a safe topic that doesn't require any lying about. Maybe someday soon they'll have nicer houses. Left down this hallway and down these stairs. As near as I can currently guess, this is going to require figuring out how to build cheaper roads, onto which one can put unpowered small machines that will let house builders quickly get back and forth from medium cities to small towns in order to build nicer houses without their specialized labor being very expensive because of travel costs, which, I thought to myself, maybe I should go talk to somebody about all that. Sounds great. She finds him the sitting room. Keltham? says a middle-aged woman with her hair in a bun, who is looking through the report on who Keltham's god might be. So my parents told me. Yourself? Marta, how can I help you? I'd like to talk project resources and Chelish governance's priorities. Before then, do you mind if I ask what's the local larger organizational structure that embeds this project and your place in it? Yes. My job is to track project spending, track project revenue once it has any, solicit project revenue estimates, approve briefing on the project for new people it becomes necessary to involve, and authorize acquisitions. I report to Mayal, who is a Fifth Circle cleric of Asmodeus and the site director. Mayal reports to his superiors in the church and ultimately to the High Priestess Aspexia Rugaton and to Her Imperial Majesty's staff, including Contessa Lurilatha, who you've met. Among my top questions is to discuss what governance wants. In what order? where any and all particulars may be rapidly revised in the face of particular avenues proving more or less tractable. Is governance's value function over outcomes there sufficiently understandable to you that you're confident of your own ability to predict it with only rare referrals upward, or should I be moving upward in the management tree to have that conversation? Governance is reasonably liable to change its mind a bunch in the next few weeks, but probably the easiest way to give the crown and church more flexibility is to have as low importance a person as possible give an explanation now, which it'll then be possible for her superiors to override later if they change their minds. That depends a little on your questions, but governance's priorities have been communicated to me and I can do my best to convey them. I'll try asking my questions, but if you don't correctly predict management above's answer to them, the result would be incorrectly prioritized outcomes that are potentially expensive for governance relative to governance's optimally obtainable outcomes, if there's anyone who can predict answers better. I'm sorry, I'm probably saying things that don't make sense for Galarian somehow. Though, even if they don't have the Dathalani idiom of lower deciders registering their predictions, of upper deciders' predictions, until you finally get to whoever in management, or whoever in the judicial courts or wherever, is supposedly the gold standard for that issue. Don't have junior people decide macro project priorities. Refer them to the top manager, specialized on that project or in those priorities. Is a notion that Keltham would have thought projected down to the simpler case. Keltham is also noticing that, if you try to do sensible project management, 
while speaking in Taldane, this is even harder than speaking other sensible thoughts in Taldane. Should he ask Marta if she can comprehend languages? No. Let's try pushing through for now. Before I go on, around how much of what I've already discussed with project members has been recounted to you by project members, or by security, or other observers? We have detailed notes on your presentation yesterday to your researchers. Some of your researchers also individually came to projects with questions or predictions based on class conversation and also mealtime conversations. All of them are expected to do that at least by the end of the week when we'll renegotiate their salaries. But not all of them have done it yet, so you shouldn't assume we know everything you said in public to any of them. So as to be clear on how much of yesterday's presentation got successfully preserved, do you mean you've got imperfect but cross-reference notes from students afterwards? Or was there an invisible wizard writing everything down verbatim as fast as I said it? A transcription spell, rather than an invisible wizard, was employed, but we believe the notes to be complete. You may look at them and issue corrections if you'd like. I'd like to review my improvised extemporaneous lectures in case I made errors or omissions that stand out as needing correction. Yeah. Thanks to whichever person for their hopefully routine competence in having set that up. Governance, then, should now have a specific, rather than abstract or second-hand notion of what I know and what that knowledge can do. It's built on a base level of trained skills of thinking that work together effectively because of overlapping coherence and direction inspired by explicit mathematical structure, which were applied by my civilization of a billion wealthier people of much higher average intelligence to systematically decode and exploit reality to a far greater distance than Galarian appears to have traversed, leaving also incomplete traces in my personal memory of specific facts, techniques, and methodologies that I encountered in systematic or unsystematic passing. I know why snowflakes have six-fold symmetry. I can turn mechanical motion into cold without a snowball spell, but I don't know yet how much motion for how much cold. I knew how to build a faster kind of unpowered sailing ship, but it sounded like you have those already. I know how to make an unpowered mechanical device that will let people move between cities faster than a person can run, but only if there are roads between those cities. I know how I'd go about figuring out how to make cheaper roads, but I don't know how long that research will take, or how good the end results would be. The books in the library here are written in ways that reflect patterns of thinking that I know are invalid, and I remember some things about how to train a person as intelligent as I am so that they'll think effectively. I know the foundational math that structured the kinds of thinking that I learned. There is an attractor, an overlap, a center in everything whose structure is that math. And by far the most important question is whether Galarian can be started down the path leading into that attractor and learn for itself what civilization learned. But there remains the question of what governance wants to see first for scaling up investment in this. Many of those things are of interest to us, but what we currently predict will be most immediately valuable is the habits of thought for intelligent people that make them competent to discover all the rest. For any given solution, there are often going to be a lot of Galarian-specific reasons why it's not easy to implement, and our current prediction is that little, not none, of Dath Ilan's direct technologies will easily translate. But if we understand the basics of how the gods reason and how human-level intelligences can use the reasoning patterns of the gods, 
then we can overcome any given complication that is due to dragons or charybdis or the fae or whatever. Keltham doesn't know enough to be impressed by the sensibility of a crown-boosted Abergail Thrun, because Keltham has no reference point for the usual sensibility levels of pseudo-medieval governments. I suspect you underestimate how much would translate if we had the books in front of us, but we don't, and that means non-Keltham people need to know how to fill in the gaps regardless. Such techniques are meant to be used, however. They are best taught as they are applied, not as pure abstractions. In civilization, children are not spoiled for a number of elementary physical truths and inventions so that they can learn underlying mental forms in the course of inventing them. This regime is optimized for the final quality of the resulting adults, however, not for speed in rapidly retraining adults to the same techniques. The point is, we will, at some point, need a starting application. I haven't hurried my attempts to ask for a starting project, because it would be exhausting to produce an exhaustive list of everything I might possibly be able to do, and so far it has seemed like it makes more sense to keep asking questions about local conditions until I orient, so I can understand myself, which of your largest problems I can probably solve quickly. It will still help if I have, uh, your language doesn't have a word for the thing I want, which is not an encouraging sign. Does Cheliax have a central list of how much monetary value governance puts on everything it usually pursues? Like, amount of gold it's worth to cure an otherwise fatal disease in a one-year-old infant? Or the amount it's worth to produce one more second-circle wizard? No, we could try to produce a partial one for you. Do you have a different solution for why your government is, like, capable of coherently wanting or planning anything, given that it's made up of more than one person? for not having one person decide that it's not worth 10,000 gold to produce three wizards and somebody else deciding that it's worth 15,000 gold to produce one of them. The operation of wizarding schools is delegated to different people who can make whatever trade-offs strike them as correct, and then the ones who get good results for the resources the crown has offered them get promoted. Budgets for wizarding schools are set off what recent successful people spent. Is that actually as horrifyingly ad hoc as it sounds for an entire-ass government? I would find a partial list useful of things governance has previously spent money on, how much money for what results, in a way that struck upper governance as being just barely good ideas, but good ideas nonetheless, where the just barely qualifier tells me that the outcome was worth around that much money, and not at least that much money. I would also suggest that governance at some point take the time to reflect on its own operations and figure out how much it relatively wants different things. Keltham reflects on the techniques he got taught as a kid, for carefully extracting that info, checking if it made sense, checking if anything got left out, where standard techniques for doing that correctly and not screwing it up are again something I can try to teach. It's really not just about better forging techniques. Civilization also knew how to, for example, manage very large projects effectively. Assuming all the managers are slightly smarter than I am, so, yes, it may require adaptation, but still. But I've got no idea how much something like that is worth to you, or what kind of increased project resources I could get after accomplishing that, versus inventing a more visibly successful forge process that uses 30% less fuel. And neither, apparently. Does governance itself have any collective idea what it's worth to governance? 
I realize I may sound like I'm flailing here, but right now I'm very much trying to orient it all, to what management wants from me and how much it's willing to pay to get it. I'd be happy to get you a list of projects that were just barely worth it and amounts we'd be willing to pay for different kinds of progress. Our current anticipation is that this will be things most Chellish people cannot learn, so we will benefit more from techniques that some people who have learned them can figure out how to adapt for other people who cannot. Yeah, the intelligence problem is probably the severest problem you have, if not the most quickly solvable one. I don't suppose you'd have any idea what effective price governance puts on raising one random citizen's intelligence from 10 to 11, or 14 to 15? Well, as an upper bound, headbands of plus two intelligence cost 4,000 gold, so we're not willing to pay 2,000 gold for it in the average case. Who's the least useful person who automatically gets assigned an intelligence headband as a matter of routine? Wizards promoted into command of a unit of more than 100 soldiers typically at Fourth Circle, if they haven't purchased their own years before that, which they typically do. That's very helpful, thank you. At what earliest point do we start looking visibly as useful collectively as a wizard in command of 100 soldiers? You are already estimated to be more useful than that, and more resources than that are already ongoingly expended on this project. Our plan is to deliver you headbands even if we do not upgrade our estimate of the usefulness of the project. But it will take a few weeks because of added security measures. Ah, okay. That makes more sense compared to what I expected an intelligence headband cost and what I expected this villa cost. Security measures? Magic items can be cursed. Usually this is not a major concern in the headband trade because a trained wizard with specific experience in detecting enchantment and mental manipulation will notice. If we're giving them to a bunch of young students with no such training, we had better be very sure. Keltham almost asks why checking is harder than just giving them to a trained wizard to put on, but stops himself. Even he can think of unlimitedly many ways to get around that test. Are you worried about old, cursed items accidentally getting into the system, or specific adversaries targeting this project, and with access to our supply network? Specific adversaries targeting Cheliax's magic item supply chain, though it'd be surprising if they'd managed already to target the project specifically. Less surprising, given how much divine intervention this project has already attracted, I suppose. Other countries have in the past tried slipping cursed magic items into our military supply chain for purposes of espionage or sabotage, what we're doing over the next two weeks is having the headbands made from scratch by trusted people and observed during the manufacture process, and while they're brought here so they can't be swapped out for others, and then we'll do some tests on site as well. Then you can have them. He should ask Carissa about her own reasoning, before asking project management about the safety of Carissa's bypassing the system, Keltham thinks. It is not clear that everyone's organizational internal incentives are perfectly aligned. But he should ask Carissa about it, soon. Actually, wouldn't another obvious reason to take a few weeks to carefully manufacture headbands be if they wanted to custom curse his headband, or everyone's for that matter? Hmm. Also a thing to inquire about, but subtly. His next question was one that did occur to him immediately, but was at first suppressed as lower priority, so his asking it for this other reason shouldn't be much likelihood ratio to them. Maybe it's the wrong use of your time to ask, but if it can be said briefly, what are the consequences if an adversary manages to infiltrate one headband? Likely ones, 
they are able to eavesdrop. That is the obvious multi-purpose kind of infiltration adversaries frequently attempt. Also likely, they're able to use it to track the wearer's location or to tell what spells the wearer has gotten. Less likely, more concerning ones, they're able to interfere with the fundamental function of the headband, enhancing intelligence, by making some thoughts more salient or easier to apply full intelligence to, and others less so. They're able to detect at some low granularity the wants, priorities, and fears of the wearer. Aw, oh, crap. Though plus side, they would be less likely to tell him that if they were planning to curse his headband on purpose. But still. It's plausible that if Carissa can detect cursed headbands well enough not to fear them, Keltham can also detect them via sheer having any mental skills that even use Owl's wisdom. But specific training always counts for an awful lot. And of course, Keltham only has their word that an adequate counter-training even exists. Well, he'll figure that later. Back to primary topic. What would you say if I asked you to tell me about Cheliax's most important problems, independently of whether you thought I could solve them? The world wound is the most urgent problem. We are allocating something like 15% of our resources to containing it, and it is not getting worse, but it is not getting better either. After that, periodic epidemics of cholera, smallpox, polio, plague, and flu, ongoing deaths from tuberculosis, malaria, and diarrheal diseases, droughts, inadequate nutrition, the threat of war, risks from random, powerful wizards doing very stupid things. Directly challenging world wound fighting sounds, like it would take weapons. Weapons take trust. Keltham is not very calibrated on how well they do at fighting epidemics here, but if that's their second worst problem, about how much would the government pay to avoid one epidemic, from whichever is the worst class of epidemic, and how often does that happen? And suppose that I ask somebody to come by tomorrow who's an expert on epidemics and current countermeasures, so I can quiz them. I don't particularly expect this result, but suppose it turns out I can tell you something on the spot. That, combined with your other magical capabilities, completely wipes smallpox or flu. What could I expect in return, and how would the project scale from there? I expect we would pay 50,000 gold pieces to avoid one epidemic, noting that delaying one in one city through very good precautions usually just means it hits there later because no one developed immunity through infection. I expect we would pay something like a million gold pieces that completely made a major cause of epidemics go away if that didn't just mean all the same people die, but of other things through some mechanism. I don't know what higher budget project items you'd want. More of Contessa Lorelatha's time? More students? More miscellaneous magic items? But we could arrange any of them, if you achieved that. Keltham nods. That's grim but true. If plagues reduce population density to make future plagues less likely, or if people starve until their immune systems weaken, and after a plague the survivors get more food per capita, those are both equilibria that will get restored around the variation of particular causes. I'll think more toward generalizable measures that will shift long-term equilibria of epidemic levels rather than on specifics of one epidemic then. If your impression is that naively eliminating one particular source of epidemic would, say, cause urban density or food per person to increase or decrease until the remaining epidemics became more virulent. 
I'll obviously also want a contract before solving particular things, and it'd be nice if there was some generalizing way to assess that value, rather than my constantly interrupting myself to negotiate and sign new contracts. That's part of why it would have been useful to have a schedule of how much value the government assigns to things. We could then negotiate general percentages covering what I and other project members would capture of the value we create. We will try to come up with such a schedule for you, and a proposed general contract along the same lines as the one you negotiated for general intellectual concepts with Contessa Lurilatha. If you would like, I can lay out approximately the terms we'd expect that to have, though I don't have authorization to make commitments on that scale on the Crown's behalf. Understood. Go ahead, then. Cheliax expects to request most of the gains, maybe 80% or 90% of Keltham's inventions, while he is repaying them for the loan of this villa and a full-time research staff and a full-time security staff. The loan will accumulate interest at the same rates any devil in hell gets. If they get a loan in hell, usually humans have to pay higher interest rates than that, but that's because, frankly, lots of humans will run away and not pay and they both trust and can verify Keltham's assurances on that front. Cheliax expects to request much less of the gains, perhaps half, once the loans are repaid. A complication they are keeping in mind is that, uh, Cheliax doesn't have a systematic way of collecting benefits that don't literally directly accrue to the state in the form of higher tax revenues from various dukes, and it sounds like Keltham's society would have such a method. If you wish to support this AI reading and others like it, please visit patreon.com slash askwhocastsai. Any help is appreciated. And thank you to executive producer John Doe 7776059.